I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. What got you there with Sean Delaney? Uh, what got you there with Sean Delaney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? What the got difficulty you there is that you almost expect that your idea is going to be this perfect, well-crafted thing. And yet what happens is that one's idea starts off as the ugly, I don't know, I was going to say ugly baby, but that sounds terrible. But your new ideas are, are ugly and awkward, and it's easy to dismiss them. And so if you push yourself too long like I did, then you're just sort of hoping a perfect idea lands on your lap when really you should be finding the thing you're passionate about and then your iterations and tests, whether they're failed or not, won't matter because they'll keep building you towards the passion that you love and you'll keep being an expert in this field that you're already interested in. Jeremy Gucci is the CEO of Trend Hunter, a New York Times bestselling author, an award-winning innovation expert, and one of the most sought-after keynote speakers on the planet. Trend Hunter is the world's number one innovation website with 200,000 idea hunters and 3 billion views from 150 million visitors. Prior to Trend Hunter, Jeremy grew a $1 billion portfolio for a bank. And today, over 600 brands, billionaires, and CEOs rely on his innovation keynote speeches and workshops to accelerate innovation and make change happen, including Google, Disney, Starbucks, Red Bull, Netflix, Lego, Victoria's Secret, Coca-Cola, IBM, and Wells Fargo. He's even helped NASA prototype the journey to Mars. On this episode, Jeremy goes into his new book, Create the Future, Tactics for Disruptive Thinking, and how you can create innovation in your life and your company. Making change transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand, they're MCT Co., and they make the most delicious, keto-friendly, all-natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar, and loaded with high quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great tasting convenience snack, do yourself a favor, head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. Jeremy, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Doing terrific. Thanks so much for having me on the show. No, very excited for this conversation, but I want to start with complexity. And you're a busy guy. You're flying all over the place. How do you handle and how do you stay on top of everything with a constantly evolving and chaotic schedule like your own? There's some little bit that I must crave chaos. I don't know. It's a, I'm a sucker for punishment. <laughs> Uh, but I actually, I, I had written a book uh, 12 years ago called Exploiting Chaos, which was how chaos creates opportunity. And I kind of apply that to my life. I think that if you're open to new ideas and flexible and, uh, you know, always looking for what's next, something will evolve. And, and truthfully, I think for entrepreneurs or people that are starting out, what happens is that you get this weird uh, obsession where there's always 10 things you can do and you only have time to do two. And so then you start to feel guilty. 
But if you're drinking from the fire hose, that's a good thing because you're probably picking the most optimal choices along the way. So I don't really worry about the chaos. I just try and get through it and, and assume that uh, chaos is usually a good thing. No, I, I love that framework. And it almost seems to, to hit on something you, you write about, and that's optionality. And one of the stories I love in your book is talking about force collisions. And do you think the constant travel, the chaos helps have more of these force collisions you talk about? Yeah, I mean, generally the idea of a forest collision is how do you get yourself out to interact with other people? And the word forest collisions, I was doing a project for NASA, shameless name drop, I get it. But uh, there's a woman there who's one of our clients who's the deputy chief uh, director of technology for, for all of NASA. And her name's Debbie Amato. And her job, as she sees it, is strictly to force collisions. And the reason why is that people get caught in their silos in their day-to-day life, but innovation, brilliant ideas happen from when we're interacting with other people. So she will actually create poster sessions where she gets all these scientists together, almost like a science fair, but they're grown-up scientists. And the idea is that people who normally don't talk to each other will share whatever their coolest new idea is. And she talked about how a new form of science was actually created by two random scientists randomly standing next to each other. So that's a fun little science example. But I think in real life, you really need to find a way to interact with people that are different and creative and and coming at the world from a different perspective. And then maybe you'll unlock something new. I know you're infamous sitting on a plane going up to to random people or even notable people that, that you see on your flight. Is this just your outgoing personality? Is this something you've always had? Uh, I guess I'm naturally inquisitive. I try not to be that guy on a plane. <laughs> some people on a plane, but uh, but yeah, I'm curious and interested in people, and and just always looking for what could be the next idea. You know, it actually it it stems back to my dad. So my dad was always just a very curious person, and 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 he would always ask, you know, well, why are we doing this or that or whatever, in in the quest of what would be a new idea. And he was a serial entrepreneur with all sorts of ups and downs. And when he knew I wanted to be a serial entrepreneur. That would lead him to be like, no, ask that person a question. No, let's see if we could make it. Uh, how about we read magazines today and just look at the stuff with new inventions? And that actually sort of set up everything that I would I would later do in life. So do you think understanding and disrupting the future, does that have to do with asking great questions and then just that natural curiosity? Well, we, people get caught in a path. And actually, I was, when I was writing Create the Future, the first half of the book is about disruptive thinking and how to get out of the path you're already on. And what I find is that, um, especially if a person is successful, it's so easy to repeat whatever led to last decisions or last year's harvest, as I like to put it. Actually, the metaphor I use is that a million years ago, we were hunters in an eat-or-be-eaten world, and we've all got those hunter instincts. But 10,000 years ago, people planted the first seeds. We started farming, and for 10,000 years, we've evolved to repeat and optimize whatever led to last year's harvest. That means if you're doing successful, if you're doing well, then it's just easy to stay caught in the groove repeating what you're doing. And the only way out is to think disruptively, find ways to break from the path. And that probably comes from finding the ways to challenge yourself, which could be by talking to other people or even by just taking an inner deep look at what you're up to and and assuming there's got to be a different way to do things. You mentioned challenging yourself. It makes me think back to, to you talking about your father, who was a serial entrepreneur, what do you think he did really well to instill some of the successful habits that you currently have? I think that the, it was the pursuit of overlooked opportunity. And actually, he's got a wild story about when he was a kid that we used to, to hear about. And what happened is that he was born to a poor immigrant family. They didn't have much, and his, but his mom was a cook, and so they always ate well. 
And one day he's at the grocery store with her and he's eight years old. And uh, there it is, the Kraft Philadelphia cream cheese. And so when he, she's not looking, he smushes it into his mouth. And she looks over and she's like mortified. What is my child doing? She runs over, grabs him by the neck, takes him to the storekeeper. And then this is probably the funnier part because she's not sure what to say. It just goes, uh, I caught this kid stealing. <laughs> uh, and they sentenced him to sweep the floors after school. And, and he did that for a month. And what happened is that he noticed that every week they throw away vegetables and produce that's uh, good enough to eat from the poor household he's in, but not good enough for the shelves. So he struck up his first business deal and agreed to sweep the floors for the leftover food, which he would then cart around to his neighbors. And pretty soon he was the first kid on the block with a leather jacket and a BB gun. But <laughs> the, the takeaway is just that, you know, he was trying to find value in an overlooked opportunity that other people you saw as something useless or discarded. And he's, he dedicated his life to finding overlooked opportunity. And now that's what I've spent my professional career on. And it really just makes me always think that you probably have some other great idea that's so close within your grasp, but you have to push yourself to get there. Yeah, I want to talk about that, that pushing yourself. And uh, I'm assuming it wasn't just a clear path to being a young entrepreneurial kid right into becoming and starting Trend Hunter and then being a successful best-selling author. Were there years in between that you were still searching and trying to figure out what that next path was? Yeah, it's an obsessive, terrible path, actually, because I wanted to be an entrepreneur so bad. So imagine the tales of a dad that's a boy businessman. That made me want to be a boy businessman. So I had a dozen little terrible little businesses I ran as a kid. They're all funny to me now. But um uh, the thing is, I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur and, and because I would be prototyping these things out and we'd read all these magazines He'd say, what do you think of this idea? What do you think of that idea? Let's make that this weekend. I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I wanted it to be a good business. And that was a bit of, a, in a way, I guess, the trap, because then I just kept relentlessly looking and I went in school to maybe be better at the business I'd run. And I went in to become a consultant to maybe see how other businesses might work. And I did my MBA and CFA only to try and maybe be able to run a better business one day and get my inspiration. And it, and it for me, was a really, really impatient search. And that led me then eventually to the world of innovation where you're helping other people find ideas. And I'm working for a bank, helping them grow a, a business line, a billion-dollar business. Sounds great, but tell your 12-year-old entrepreneurial self you grew up to be a banker. And you'd be like, no. <laughs> so the story was then that I coded up Trend Hunter in the wee hours of the morning when I would get back from that bank job and I would do the innovation job all day and then I would come back and code this website to make a place, Trend Hunter, where people would share business ideas. And this is before YouTube, before Facebook, so I had to teach myself to code, but I was doing it because I thought maybe some Trend Hunter in South America or a Trend Hunter in Asia will submit the little idea that could inspire my little business. And what I didn't expect is that the traffic would go from thousands to millions to billions of views and it would turn into this big research platform helping other people. But the story really is just one of a, a kid all the way on trying to be relentlessly finding a business idea. And so now we do it for other people, but I hope we can help them get to their idea faster. Yeah, no, I love that. I want to talk more specifically about Trend Hunter, but I'm curious about your wordage there with the impatient search. And for advice for a young entrepreneur who also has that impatient search, do you think there's anything they could be doing just to prepare themselves for when they find that idea? Well, I mean, I think that the, the, the difficulty is that you almost expect that your idea is going to be this perfect, well-crafted thing. And yet what happens is that 
one's idea starts off as the ugly, I don't know, I was going to say ugly baby, but that sounds terrible. But your new ideas are, are ugly and awkward, and it's easy to dismiss them. And so if you push yourself too long, like I did, then you're just sort of hoping a perfect idea lands on your lap, when really you should be finding the thing you're passionate about, and then your iterations and tests, whether they're failed or not, won't matter, because they'll keep building you towards the passion that you love, and you'll keep getting better at being an expert in this field that you're already interested in. Can you talk about the the hard work you were putting in, the long hours, the late nights, when you started coding Trend Hunter, and, and what you were just foreseeing the future to be there? Yeah, I almost had a little shudder there because I'm remembering. But in 2004 and, and five, I was doing my, uh, I was working, uh, running innovation or business line for a bank. And then I had, uh, maybe I'm not at that point yet there, but that's generally the company I was at. And then I'd found a way to do an MBA uh, in a, at the same time that you're working on like an executive MBA. So I thought, oh, great, I can take that on in my extra hours. So then I was doing that and I did the CFA at the same time and I did the coding. And it's because I was just really like pushing so hard. So I was doing my 100 hour a week. I was doing all nighters once a week. I'd work till 3 a.m. And, you know, now I look back and it sounds like I'm, I'm glamorizing it, but I was really, really feeling sort of uh, unhappy purpose wise because I felt like I was burning my entrepreneurial best years by doing something else for someone else when I wanted to do something that was just very unique and different for me. So that was it. So that was it. And I, I remember like uh, very vividly the Christmas day where my, I'm happy because I have Christmas break to work even harder. And I'm back at my mom's house and I'm making big strides in my coding lessons to myself. And she comes out at seven in the morning and goes, did you not sleep? And I said to her, what do you mean? You're only starting Christmas Day now? I've been enjoying Christmas Day for hours. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the never-ending hard work uh, of an entrepreneur there. Uh, I'm also intrigued, though, about those days with Trend Hunter and just continuing to push, continuing to evolve early on. Was there a moment where you finally realized you were actually on to something and this could be a sustainable business? So uh, in the early days of it, when I was still sort of uh, running the other business uh, uh, line for a bank, I thought of that bank job like it was a venture capitalist to me. And it wasn't, but I thought the paycheck that I'm getting during the day is funding me to try bigger tests with this little project I'm creating. And if a test fails, well, I'll just keep working for the bank longer. And if a test works, then I can leave. And what was interesting is that this is pretty early in the days of like, there's not really social media, there's no Facebook yet. And so traffic started growing pretty quickly. It was a really neat spot for people, trend hunters around the world to come and share ideas and, and traffic started getting really big. And so pretty soon it, we're getting millions of views a, a, a month and I'm going on MTV to talk about what's next while returning to the bank job and people are like, what, what's happening with what I just saw? you know, this morning. So it was really kind of weird. But as that traffic grew, then I started realizing it would be okay to do this full time. And I actually hired my first full time employee while I was still working at the day job. And she was an editor to then edit and, and sort of continue things so that when I would get home, I could work more on the business development side of things to get to that point where I knew I could take the leap. Are you a big believer in terms of hiring that you need to hire for your weaknesses? Well, it worked for me, but I have lots of weaknesses. I do think that one should try to get somebody that is the complement to their own skill set. 
because innovation comes from diverse thinking and having multiple perspectives approaching a problem. And also it enables you to have a little bit more focus. I think there are a lot of stories in startups where you see two co-founders and it doesn't work because partway through they realize they do the same thing, but maybe one of them does it better or they have very different opinions. Whereas if you take on multiple perspectives, you can go tackle different problems. Um, and I know myself, we actually study a lot of learning styles. And so in our trend hunter assessment, which sort of looks at what your strength is and how that would be your weakness, my strength is that I'm uh, very flexible, but it means I don't stick to the plan. Our chief culture officer, who in many ways, many projects acts as my, my right hand, she's the exact opposite. And she loves to plan and hates being flexible. And we know that that allows us to work together and we know where both of us has to push. So we kind of accept the other person's input as a nice little check on our, on our own. Yeah. You mentioned the assessment, which is online at trendhunter.com, all of that linked up, but you mentioned the learning styles that you're starting to, to see. Are there commonalities in any of these learning styles uh, across successful people, products, things of that nature? So what we try to look at, it is, it's related to that same metaphor of the hunter versus farmer, our thesis, which is that uh, once you get good at something, you can become too uh, protective and maybe complacent and repetitive. But if you're trying something new, you'd be more of a hunter and you'd be um, insatiable, curious, and, and willing to destroy what worked in the past. And what you start to find as you study different people is that there's actually, there's strength. Every one of us has obviously strengths and, and weaknesses, but those play out in different ways. And if you lean too far in one, if you had just a hunter like me and I'm willing to destroy and always try something new, then we're never going to end up building a business that works. Whereas if you're too protective, well, then you won't take the risks you need. So what you actually uh, need in an optimal organization would be balance or at very least a deeper understanding of yourself. Because if you really know your, your weaknesses well, you know that they correspond to your own strengths. And so you can keep yourself in check and try and think about uh, how you leverage the best of what you are while not letting the worst of you uh, sort of prevent progress and change from happening. Yeah, I think that's such an essential piece. And I took the assist, uh, assessment and I'm, I finished as willing to destroy and then also insatiable. So I think. Oh my gosh. So were you a, uh, you're a futuristic pioneer? Uh, fearless opt uh, opportunist. Okay, you're like my cousin in that. So you, I'm the exact two, but just the opposite order. That's great. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, commonalities there for sure. So I mean, let's let's dive into disruptive thinking, and and I want to hit on the book, your, your new book, "Create the Future: Tactics for Disruptive Thinking." Can you just set the overall framework for someone who's never picked this book up? What they can expect? Absolutely. So the general idea is that uh, here we are experiencing history's highest rate of change. Great, but. Uh, at the same time, so many people are getting disrupted or, or missing out. If we just boil it down to your own world, the reality is we get too stuck on a path and you probably have more paths within your grasp. You're capable of more than you think. You have an extra level. That might be a different career choice. It might be a different role. It might be a different product or a service. But the reality is you do have more within your grasp. How can I help you get there? And after working now with about 700 brands, billionaires, CEOs, all sorts of smart people, I've had a chance to learn from each of them and realize that your own success is a trap, the path you're on is a trap, 
And yet there are tactics that you can do to break yourself free and be more likely to see the path that is the optimal one for you to be on. Yeah, you mentioned all the work with with the billionaires, the CEOs. Uh, in your book, I know you mentioned the statistic that 97% of CEOs list innovation as a top priority. So I'm wondering why so many companies have such a difficult time innovating. Yeah, so at the top end, it's almost a hilariously comical or scary stat, depending on how you want to look at it. But it's a PwC survey that comes out each year, and they generally get all the Fortune 500 CEOs. And 97% say that they have innovation as a top priority. And, and that, that means like every one of them is walking around like, yes, this is our top thing. But then when you dive a little lower, that's not the sentiment in the rest of the organizations. I know in our assessment scores, we've looked at now about 35,000 people and generally around half feel that they don't have the tools to turn ideas into reality, that innovation is not prioritized, that, that people aren't really sharing ideas. So I think that looking at that, that 97% stat, it should really stand out. Because on one hand, it means there's a big appetite for innovation. We've reached a point in the world where that's what everyone seems to think. And yet there's still a gigantic gap when it comes to skills and, and what you can do. But I think that speaks to the opportunity that you have, any of your listeners, to close that gap. And if you learn how to innovate, if you learn some of these tactics, you will be the one that pushes your organization forward because there's CEO sponsorship at the very top trying to make this innovation thing or reality. Let's talk about those people who actually have been able to innovate. Uh, I know you've worked with a ton of incredibly impressive people. Are there anyone or certain companies that come to mind that have always had this innovation and disruptive thinking in the back of their mind? I think from the outside, people look at certain brands that they know and, and you see the disruptors. Uh, so, you, so, you know, you hear people jump to big brands like, oh, Google or, or Disney, you're seeing what some of these brands do. But I think on a more simple and the way that I like to look at it is that it boils down to how much you're able to harness that hunter instinct and make change happen versus farm. And when I work with organizations, what I often try and really get a good sense of is their own self-perception of performance and how that links to the Achilles heel. Because some companies, let's say like a Google, they're number one and they're insatiable and they need to stay number one and they try a lot of stuff and they're paranoid. And those paranoid companies, they probably only account for one in a hundred companies. Then on the other end, you have the companies where things are broken and they need to figure stuff out. And, and that, that group, you know, they're actually going to be able to change and try things. The problem is that most companies fall in the middle, let's say 90%, that think they're doing well and therefore don't need to change. So if you think about which companies are doing well, I always find it's interesting from the outside because you can actually start to see these ones which are probably paranoid or scared. I looked at, um, we worked with Domino's Pizza since 2010 or something, and at the time their stock was pummeled and they were doing terrible. They're down 90% or whatever the number is. And now they're up something like 15 times. I don't know the number perfectly, but it's a ridiculous amount that's bigger than almost every tech stock. And if you look at what they've done, they've basically opened their mind to everything. You can order pizza with an emoji. You can open an app that just sends you a pizza without you picking any options. And it just sends you what you have last. And it, and it almost gets to the ridiculous level. But imagine then being at a company doing well and saying, hey, I think you should be able to order pizza with an emoji. This is years ago. People would laugh you out of the room. 
but the company wasn't doing well, so they had an openness to try new things. So if you ask me which companies are doing well or not doing well, I guess what I'm more curious about is really finding out which ones are the ones with hunter instincts who are willing to try new things. Yeah, no, thank you for uh, for reframing that question and, and making it even that much clearer to, to understand what we're looking for and how we can better self-assess our own companies. And another thing that really has me intrigued and, and you know a lot about is when you have very intelligent people or people who are experts in industry and they're missing the big changes that happen. You see this with, with Fortune 500 companies. I think the average lifespan now is only 15 years as opposed to 50 years previously. So why is it? Why is it these smart people miss out on these big changes? Yes, smart people in any industry um, will experience success. And then that makes it actually easier to dismiss other ideas that seem quirky or goofy. So there's a long list. There's dozens and dozens of companies where the inventor of a given technology is the one that actually missed out on, on its uh, opportunity. And I, I could you know go through a million of them, but we, and you, you've heard some, but you know, Smith Corona invented the laptop word processor and effectively the first grammar checkers and spell checkers. And Xerox invented the mouse and the graphic user interface a decade before Bill Gates and Steve Jobs took a tour of their facilities. Blockbuster Video pioneered online video streaming, which is why they had three chances to buy Netflix for $50 million. And this goes on and on and on. But what happens is that if you're in an industry, you know what you've tried and you look at some new idea and it looks quirky and awkward. And then you think, well, we've already tried something like that and that's awkward and it's not going to work. So you dismiss the potential of, of rival ideas and, and things look um, further away from you than you might imagine. You overestimate how much control you have of the market and how much you can change. And you underestimate how much these awkward ideas could actually turn into something that, that could take away uh, your own consumers and disrupt you. You see thousands of ideas in thousands of companies. So I'm wondering what ideas over the past few years have you seen be rejected that you think at some point will catch on? That's a fun question. You know, it's fun. I actually, my brain, I'll think of that. I also went to the opposite because, um, so Trend Hunter, we try to leverage the power of the crowd to gut check you. And our whole system is measuring the people that come through and, and what they're interested in instead of your own world. Because I jumped to something where I thought the opposite. I remember on Trend Hunter in 2007 that tw a Twitter came out and I looked at it and I, it was months old. I thought, oh, Twitter is stupid. And that was my like view as a guru who was already in social media and, and working away uh, at, at Trend Hunter. But the power of the crowd said something different. And so then we followed it and, and we um, uh, sort of put it in all our research reports to marketers, et cetera. And, it's an, and to this day, I still think Twitter is kind of awkward. But the point is that the power of the crowd tells you something different. So when I look today at the things that are maybe being dismissed um, uh, that might have potential, I, I take the opposite approach and I'm seeing what I think Trent Hunter is saying is working, but maybe it's not something you see commercially successful just yet. And I would say some of the things that, that um, are going to keep on getting a lot stronger would be uh, catalyzation, which is our mega trend for the, how much purpose gets infected into a, a brand. Um, that, that's kind of a neat one. And then um, instant entrepreneurship, which is the fact that a kid could be uh, an entrepreneur overnight. But let's talk about catalyzation. We, we're becoming more aware of the world and the environment and how businesses need to be sustainable. Got it. And you can take a look at brands like Patagonia that have that embedded in their ethos. But yet there's still so many different things that we tolerate that are completely um, 
you know, not sustainable, but we like them for other reasons. So we give them a pass. Like Amazon, I order a box of granola bars and I'll get a giant box inside another box inside another box. Like it's, it's kind of wild. So I think we're in an interesting state right now where there's certain trends like um, calization, where uh, which is about brands helping you become better at whatever you care about, where we're thinking that they're awkward or they're just little or they're fad. But I think as the next generation comes in, some of those things will take us over us like a wave. No, I love getting a little preview into, into what the future might look like. But let's talk about just disruptive thinking as a whole. And, and I'm wondering what you're doing personally when you're trying to get in that disruptive manner, that disruptive mode in thinking. Are there particular activities you do that have just helped you personally get into that mode of thinking? Part of it is always assuming that you're incorrect. So uh, we spend a lot of time studying the different traps that keep a person caught on the on the path. And, and so there are certain things that they, when I go, it's kind of like I'm dancing around this, but in the book, I go through seven different uh, traps. And then at the end, I kind of walk through the activities that you could do, but I'll give you one that's a, an example. So one of the traps is, is um, basically your neuropsychology. And, and what happens is you're wired to repeat what you've done before. And it's sort of what distinguishes us from the annual animal kingdom. We make little myelin pathways in our head that make it easier for us to do things faster. And what that means is that whatever you're best at, you start to just do very naturally. So if you thought about, let's say, Serena Williams picking up a tennis racket, the first time she did it, it was awkward. But now it's supernatural because she's done it 10,000 times. And your brain makes these pathways in a way that makes you smarter and better and faster and more effective. But it also makes you repetitive, dismissive, and basically uh, uh, too protective. And the way out is to train yourself by practicing doing things in a different way. And the easiest way for me to kind of prove it to you would be if you cross your arms right now as fast as you can, it would be natural and, and you'd get it. But if I said as fast as you can, cross your arms the other way, just the other way, cross your arms quickly the other way, then you find your brain's kind of thinking about the steps. It happens in your business world too. So the practice that you can do if you want to become more natural and more creative is trying to look at your problems from different perspectives, having workshops and realizing that maybe when you uh, look at a workshop or go through exercises like, like um, uh, I don't know, creative exercises, you're actually reprogramming your brain to be more creative in all situations. Yes, something you talk about with the exercises is, is you hit on the importance of simulations and testing ideas <laughs> through simulations. Is this something you've always implemented and always been a fan of? I guess in my earlier career, I was in running innovation at a bank. You would go through these activities because they were the necessary step to take the ideas everyone's having and then filter them down and find out what you should do. And now that I'm uh, 15 years past that part of my career and I'm doing this on a professional level with people that are you know, CEOs, I'm starting to have a whole different appreciation for it and realizing that I just did it because it was my job and I felt that was what's next. But now I'm realizing that a lot of high performance individuals have tactics related to their brainstorming and creativity because they know it dramatically impacts their performance and they're trying to encourage and retrain their, their, their brain in a way. So I think that I, I've done that activity for a long time, or like workshops and, and creative exercises. I just didn't in the beginning recognize the importance with how it impacts the type of person that you end up being. Talking about some of those leaders, I'd be interested to get your take and perspective 
are they operating at a higher level or are they very close to, to the average employee, but they just do things a little bit differently? What's that balance like? In some cases, it's uh, it's also part of the role to be trying to act differently because let's say you have a, a CEO or uh, it could be a head of innovation too. Your job, your compensation, everything you're doing is about trying to uh, disrupt in a very different way. But you're still victim to all the same traps. There's a story I have in the book, and, and it's interesting. It's a guy named Robert Davies III, and he was working away at his, his business, and they, they sold baking soda. And uh, he was doing pretty well. He got promoted. He became president. But then he kind of started getting caught in a, a groove because he wasn't challenging what they could be doing, and the brand was losing market share, and so they fired him. And in his time away, he spent his time just thinking of what he could have done differently. And he tried a couple entrepreneurial ventures, but then they, they, they kept on failing and they brought him back. And when they brought him back, he was able to approach his role with a very fresh perspective. He started rethinking about what baking soda could do. He repositioned it as a fridge freshener. He put it into a, a more eco and sustainable line of uh, laundry detergent. And the next thing you know, the company grew 10 times bigger at, and that company's Church and Dwight, Arm & Hammer's the, the brand. But what was interesting is in his role as CEO, sure, he was maybe creative and had extra vision, but he still fell victim to the same traps all of us do, which is getting caught in the path. And it was only when he had uh, that sort of new energy to really try disrupting how they were doing things that he exhibited extraordinary success. So do CEOs often push on some of those creative and disruptive thinkings more? Yes, but not always, because like all of us, they're still just part of trying to protect these organizations and, and make things grow, and that leads to all sorts of human traps. You mentioned him getting that fresh perspective. I'm wondering, do you sit down and have self-reflection time and, and to think really macro about your business? I, I guess that's the... Uh, 150 airplane flights I have a year. <laughs> That's the amount I spend on a, a, an airplane. But I actually do use that time um, to actually think about the business. And uh, I often try not to be plugged in or watching a show. And so I'm actually sitting and thinking that, hey, this is one of the rare times I'm kind of on my own and not really connected to email unless I, I push for the airplane Wi-Fi. So then I, I use that period to actually think a little bit slower about the business and think about whether or not I'm doing everything in the, in the right order. Is there anything else you do pretty consistently just to add some some structure, maybe some frameworks uh, of how you set up your your day, your time, things of that nature? Well, with my team at, uh, at Trent Hunter, we have a lot of creative activities baked in. Part of it is that our role is, is 15 of the people there are actually... Um, uh, also keynote speakers that train our clients. So we'll run our own keynote sessions and our own exercises. Once a month, we'll do a workshop with the group. And that's not a personal thing, but it's, it's leveraging my team. So with the workshop, it's kind of interesting. So we gather everyone together. We've got about 80 people and we'll rotate through which part of the business we're tackling this month versus next. And we'll pick a real business problem. will maybe be applicable to eight people of the 80 in the room. But for the rest, it's a chance to get exposure to the rest of the business, to keep on pushing our skills workshop-wise, to teach people that creativity has a, a, a method. And for me, those are the most fun times to rethink the business because we have a series of exercises that involve destroying and recreating 
and these are actually in the book too, but um, uh, in order to get to a better outcome. So example questions would be, uh, if we went five years from now, what do you think would lead to your disruption? Or um, if Facebook approached your market or Patagonia or Amazon or Google, but do them one by one, uh, and how would they try to destroy what you're doing to rebuild it? Uh, if everything was starting from scratch tomorrow, what are the three most important things that you'd want to work on? And these sorts of questions, there's a little bit more to them, but those are some of the workshops that I'd, I'd written about and captured because I've worked on those with clients on real big situations where it's tough to just say, be creative. But if you have simulations where you can go through and actually walk through the steps of how one might rethink of their world from different perspectives, then that's what can get you to uh, actual new paths of opportunity. Yeah, that was one of the sections of the book I enjoyed the most, just because it is easy to know we want to innovate, we want to be disruptive. But then actually thinking outside the box in terms of how we do that with our team, uh, I thought the book just laid that out really well. So, so thanks for putting that down on paper. Let's talk about those 80 people, though, going from just yourself to hiring your first person and now up to 80. What have you seen as changes and then what are the different uh, difficulties you face as you scale up? So our, our, uh, we spent a long time at a similar size, kind of growing in different dimensions. And then starting in about 2013, we started doubling every 18 months. And you're going from 10 to 20. And that's pretty natural. And you're still, you're still friends and, and like really close friends. You know each other really well. But then you get to 20 to 40. And now you're realizing, wow, we really have to think about how people are managing. And that's kind of a different skill set than we all knew each other and just trusted we were doing our own things. And then you get to 20, 20 to 40 and 40 to 80 and it, and it, your whole world changes. It becomes, um, well, a lot of it becomes HR because you're trying to put in the guidelines that would keep people motivated and hopefully recreate the same passion that you had. And you're always putting out fires in a, in a different spot. So each evolution, I would say 10 to 20, 20 to 40, 40 to 80, each of those were sort of trying to reincarnate a totally different company. And then with our leadership team, trying to uh, coach ourselves on, on new skill sets. And in some ways, what we're doing with the clients on the side, it's similar. It's the same. We're making it better. But the, the work and the hustle is probably 80% figuring out how to get the team to work together. And that's not saying they're not working together. I'm just saying it's a very different thing. Um, it's Imagine hosting a party at your house. They're different at each of those levels. Yeah, that's absolutely not a black and white problem there. You, you've got a constantly evolving issue you have to, to understand to solve. So what about like the actual allocation of, of your job category? Say one thing could be um, setting the overall vision. One could be allocation of capital, things of that nature. Right now with your business being around for about 15 years, 80 people, what are you spending the majority of time on? Well, the um, so still related, I guess, to that last answer, but I'll, I'll try and think a little more deeply. But the, but uh, we had a chief culture officer from when we were probably 10 or 15 people. She's the one I told you things opposite to me in many ways that we would approach. And, and so together, that's been very, very helpful because of the key challenge being thinking about how to scale the people. Uh, otherwise, I think uh, once you get into a groove, then a lot of your work starts shifting to sales and marketing. So for us, we've spent the last uh, you know, five years, I'd say, three to five years, really trying to optimize the product, put everything in place, and then get ready to scale much faster. And so trying to do that then shifts your world again from product development, let's say, to actually figuring out how, well, how do you scale something very quickly? And for us, 
being in the business to business space mostly, a lot of that is is uh, training people to be able to sell something that's maybe complicated in a way to people that are very sophisticated and, and know their world. So that's been, I think, where we've spent a lot of our time uh, in the last five years. I got you. Yeah, thanks for, for diving deeper on that one. It's just always interesting to hear the the problems that, that people are facing, the challenges that they have to overcome. With so much experience, so many challenges you've had to tackle, I'm wondering, say your mind got a race, you were starting out tomorrow, hiring your first employee at Trend Hunter. <laughs> what are you going to be focusing on? What do you think is the most important thing for a young entrepreneur to be concerned with? The ability to change and uh, effectively, that's that's something I've learned not just in Trend Hunter, but in all of my client work as well over the last decade and, and a half, which is that uh, actually the, it's funny because it does relate to when I wrote my first book, Exploding Chaos, I, I wrote my picture and view of the world based on what I had really known working in the bank, running innovation there and stories I'd collected over time. But then I spent a decade and a half uh, consulting with so many of these high performance CEOs and leaders. And I've realized that those functional things to innovate are only half of the job. The half, which maybe took me more by surprise, really getting everyone amped up to on an individual and team level, have the ability to change and, and think disruptively. Because especially as an entrepreneur, you need to adapt many times in order to actually figure out where the value of your product or, or service is. Even for Trend Hunter, we spent years chasing page views and growing Trend Hunter as a media website. But media is a very tough business to, to actually make money in. And so we had a pivot where we turned into a research firm. And I wouldn't have forecast that that's what would have happened if I had, was starting again to your question and talking to myself or my first employee back in the day. I wouldn't necessarily seen that as the end point. But being open to that is what allowed us to grow um, you know, 10 times bigger in this last little stretch. So creative thinking really relies a lot on being able to be open to change and, and think disruptively. No, I absolutely love that. So I'm wondering then, both for Trend Hunter and then you personally, what are you looking out to for the future? What are some of the things you're hoping to accomplish? Well, we've spent, uh, as a company, we've been um, originally, well, let's go through the three orders of it. The first was chasing page views and getting billions of views of traffic. But, you know, you make 0.1 cent or 0.01 cent of you. I don't know exactly the economics right now, but I'm telling you, it's not very much. So you're hustling and working hard. Then we turn into a research firm and realize that this data we were collecting would be really handy for uh, you know, all sorts of brands in the world. But then how do you bring that to life? How do you get that in front of them? How do you make it fun? So we uh, started launching something we call Future Festival a few years ago, and now we expanded that to about 20 cities. But now our, our main focus strategically has been how do we how do we build out those festivals and make those really fun and kind of be an unconference, destroy what people think of as their normal expectation for a conference and make something that's a party made to blow your mind and get you to uh, ideas. So for us, figuring out that model has been really fun, but that's also where we are putting most of our creative effort as we look forward. Can you talk about the present state of Future Fest? If, if there's a listener right now, they're going to be attending an upcoming one of these. What can they expect? What are they going to get out of this? Well, the main, our main one's the Future Festival World Summit in Toronto, and I'll tell you how that works. It's about a thousand people all gathered together, but it's not like a normal conference. Let's say you're coming from Adidas. We get you to bring a team of six people, and you tell us before you show up that you like the human body and technology. Well, you show up on day one, 
and uh, we split you up. And now you're in a group of um, maybe 20 people max. And there's someone from Nike and Red Bull and NASA and all, all these different fields you've never heard of. But here's what happens. You said you wanted the human body and technology. So the first thing you do is hang off the CN Tower with a pulse reader hooked up to you. Then you do real life laser tag where you could get shot and electrocuted. And then you do yoga with a brain reader hooked up to you. You are having a ridiculously wild day with those 20 people. And, and uh, you want to now find your office buddies that you came to the event with and tell them and figure out what they did and find out what adventure they were on. But you're lost because now you're in a future party and it's got all these technologies from CES and elsewhere that you can actually play with with your, you know, with your real hands and, and try and test out. So day one is an experience. And then day two, you learn the future of retail, future of tech, future of life based on the content we do at Trend Hunter. And then day three is a lot more like this Create the Future book where you're sitting down with your teams doing workshops and we are trying to walk you through. I mean, our marketing spin is the same workshops we used to help NASA prototype the journey to Mars, but applied to you. So a very different attempt at a conference. And uh, we, we usually do that one in our, our home city because it's more difficult to pull off. But that gives you at least the, the vision of where we're going with it and, and generally why we're um, excited about it because we're trying to do something that's not really what others are, are doing out there. Yeah, I think that sums up pretty well why you're the person who, who writes the book around disruptive thinking with everything you guys have going on there at Future Festival. Kind of, kind of an outside-the-box question here as we wrap up. I'd, I'd be really curious to get your take on if you could sit down, spend the afternoon with anyone dead or alive, who would that be? Well, I mean, my the, without even thinking about it, the thing that jumped out was my dad. Um, when I had written my last book, I uh, I actually had this thing where you work for years on a book and you send it in and then my publisher called me and said, uh, I said, uh, you know, what's your feedback? He said, I really like page 86. I was like, well, well, um, sorry, did you like the rest of the book? Says, yeah, but it took me to page 86 to hear the story of your dad. And then I was like, why did I not hear this yet? This explains everything that you're talking about. And it's kind of like that vegetable story from earlier, the overlooked opportunity. So then he said, go back and interview your dad. And so I did, and I spent the weekend interviewing him. And that, that sort of reshaped that last book. I did put his story in Create the Future because I realized how important it's been. But I'd never thought of some of these things when I was a kid and what he was intentionally doing with the exercises to make us creative. And seven days after my interview, he had a heart attack and he died. And on one hand, I learned a lot in that last weekend. And if I, and I, and if I think back to it and you think about losing your dad, um, you know, uh, how would you want to spend the last weekend if you knew what it was? Well, I guess it would be asking him questions. So I got to do that and I'm very, very fortunate but it's just interesting because I only really got to do that in that last weekend and I still was connecting the dots and not really thinking about how profoundly some of that impacted me. So I know that the normal goal is I should be saying Einstein or something like that. Uh, but actually in this reference, that was the immediate response that, that happened. And I think that's the, that's the truth. Yeah, no, you got to be true to yourself. And I'm so glad you included that story. That was an incredibly impactful story uh, in the book. And so the book is Create the Future, Tactics for Disruptive Thinking. You've got the forward by your friend, Malcolm Gladwell. Anything else you want to leave the listeners with? Any places you want them checking out to stay connected with you or Trend Hunter or Future Festival? Well, if you're looking to think about your creative skills uh, and, and if you believe that you're capable uh, of more, but you're just not sure uh, what some of the steps are to get there, 
then you can always check out the videos or the book. But if you go to createthefuturebook.com, I've actually got the assessment tools free on there. And there's a half hour keynote that kind of gives you some more of the tactics. And so there's free resources we have all over Trend Hunter. And if that hooks you in to get the book, great. But at very least, I'm always trying to uh, inspire maybe the next entrepreneurial at heart person out there who's like, me when I spent my whole life and so long looking for an idea. So I just hope I can help uh, others find their uh, better ideas faster. No, thank you so much for inspiring me. So Jeremy, I cannot thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There? Well, thank you very much, Sean. I appreciate it. And thank you for having me on the show. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There? I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.